0: It is time to get started. Welcome, everyone, to our weekly Bible study. It's good to have everyone with us again. If you were with us last week, we made it almost through the first two paragraphs of the book of Job. And tonight, we are going to continue in the book of Job with some questions. The big question, why did God persecute Job? Why? Well, we'll get to that and a number of other questions along the way. If you have your Bible with you, open it to Job chapter 1. <clears throat> and in fact, we can just start by, we'll just reread Job 1, 1 through 5. That's Job chapter 1. If you're wondering where Job is, it comes right after Esther. Uh huh. Right after Esther, and is it right before the Psalms? And right before the Psalms. It's in the poetry section or the. The, uh, the writings. <clears throat> Job chapter 1, verse 1. We need to start with prayer. We'll pray first. Good call. Lord, as we open your word tonight, we hope that you will help us to understand, show us where we might misunderstand. And help us get to know you better. We love you and thank you for the blood of the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. Most of all, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man from the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one on his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Job 1, 1 through 5. Now in the past, I've read this section and particularly verses 4 and 5, and I've just kind of glossed over them. But this time I stopped and I asked, what does it mean? What does it mean that after the days of their feasting that Job sent and sanctified them? And why would Job be concerned that his children might curse God in their heart? And why would Job think that he could offer sacrifices on behalf of his children? And I also noticed that this wasn't a one-time occurrence. The scripture says that Job did this continually. So what's that all about? Well, if you have a new King James, the new King James publisher's introduction reads this way. Job. And then it says, The book begins with a heavenly debate between God and Satan. But that's not true. We just read where the book begins. It begins with a description of Job and his children. Before the interaction between God and Satan, the book begins by recounting that Job's children engaged regularly in rounds of feasting each on his day. So they engaged in what we might call partying, eating and drinking. Perhaps this was in the Eastern, the ancient Eastern tradition, even modern, to have a circuit of regular celebrations, each on his day, perhaps each one on their birthday. And they would have this circuit of partying that became a staple of the family life. And according to the scripture here, this partying concerned dad. Dad was worried about the partying. He was concerned that while engaging in this habitual circuit of partying, that his children were vulnerable to cursing God in their hearts. We're told here that after one such circuit, Job sent and sanctified them. So this implies that he checked on them and that he perhaps told them to practice some ritualistic act of cleansing, like bathing or changing of clothes and washing. And we'll see later where I get that. Well, we're not told exactly what the sanctification consisted of, but we're then told that Job offers burnt offerings for each of his children, indicating that the family had developed a certain habitual religious practice that coincided with the habitual circuit of partying that the children engaged in. Now, where would Job have gotten the idea? So we answered the question of uh, sanctification. Why did he sanctify them? Um, Why was he concerned that they might curse God in their heart? Well, they were partying. They were eating and drinking. And when you're partying... You can can backslide. Um, Why would Job think that he could offer sacrifices on behalf of his children? Where would he have gotten that idea? Well, I have searched the Scriptures and I cannot find any indication in the Bible that he got that idea from God or from anything that God had revealed up to that point. Now, we don't know what was revealed to Job. Uh, we don't know that, that Job had ever received any special revelation from God prior to this story. So, uh, we can assume though that Job would have been operating under the, whatever he knew about God's general revelation, that revelation that had been made through Adam and Abel and Noah and Abraham. <clears throat> Job was a son of Abraham through Esau. And so we don't know that these revelations at this time, this is before the Exodus probably, we don't know that these revelations were written down at the time. Um, But they were all recorded later by Moses, so we have them. And we can assume that Job had knowledge of them because we're told that he feared God. And God had apparently accepted his faith at some point Because last week when we read in the discourse between Job and uh, between God and Satan, that God said he was an upright man and just, feared God. And God called him my servant Job, right? So God had apparently accepted his faith and Job believed. So he had revelation of God if not directly from God. So let's take a look. Now, I'm back to the question. Where did Job get the idea he could, he could offer sacrifice for his children? Let's take a look at every instance of sacrifice that Job could have been aware of before Moses and the law and where he might have gotten the idea. Because the story takes place before Moses and the law. Long before. Um, where could he have gotten the idea that he could make sacrifices for his children? So, to, to start, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21, and we're going to start with the very first sacrifice recorded in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3 and verse, I'm sorry, not verse 1. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21 Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. So, This is the first sacrifice made by Jesus Christ himself for Adam and Eve. And this teaches us an important lesson. This is an important general revelation that God can intercede for man and that God can offer a sacrifice on man's behalf. Because Adam and Eve didn't offer the sacrifice, God did it on their behalf. He has that position, he has that authority to do that. Now, let's go to the next sacrifice, Genesis chapter 4, verse 3. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord, and Abel he also brought of the firstling of his flock and the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering, but unto Cain and his offering, He had not respect. So this reveals that Adam was not instructed to make sacrifices for his sons. Cain and Abel, Adam's sons, were responsible to make sacrifices for themselves and to make them in a way that was acceptable to God. So this is another, uh, what we would call a general revelation. Now, we're not given precise details of God's instructions on how this was to be done, but there's only so much room in the Bible, right? I mean, as it is, the Bible is already a very thick book with very thin pages and very small print. So I'm convinced that God included all the information that we need For a a man to have a perfect understanding of God's will on any subject, any question, any topic, it's all in here. But there's only so much you can put in here, right? And people ask, by the way, is the Bible we have today inherent and inspired? Is the Bible we have today inherent and, and inspired? Well, this is a question we'll address in more detail sometime in the future, Lord willing. But my short answer is yes. It's inerrant and it's inspired. I'm convinced that the perfect will of God on every subject can be found in this book. Had a conversation with a guy this week who said that this book is a translation of a translation of a translation and those translations were made by the biggest corporations in the world. And that he knew God because God was in his heart and he didn't believe in man-made religion. And my daughter, my my seventeen year old daughter, pointed out that a, a God in God in your heart is man made religion. So I sent him that today. Uh, I'm sure I'll hear back from him. Um, now where was I here? <clears throat> oh yeah, the Bible. Is it in, is it inerrant and is it inspired? Yes, it is. If you want to know the truth on anything, it's in here. Uh, anything moral spiritual, anything of, of, of import. This will not tell you the precise way to build a bridge from here to San Francisco. It won't give you the measurements, but it will teach you how to get it done. Okay. Now by the stories of the killing of the animals in Genesis three and the story of the sacrifices of Cain and Abel, Job and his children could know the perfect will of God when it came to how to make an offering to the Lord. Now, I I doubt at the time of Job that the stories of Adam and Cain and Abel, I doubt they were written down. Um, But they were known. And the general revelation is that adult men were to make a blood sacrifice to God of their own free will. Um, And there's, there's more Job may have known just by general revelation. Um, let's go to Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. Same chapter, just hop up to verse 26. And to Seth, <clears throat> and to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. <clears throat> so if a man wanted communion with God, he had the ability to call upon him and by calling upon the name of the Lord a man professed his belief that God is right and we know from earlier revelation that those men would have made offerings according to the pattern of righteous Abel <clears throat> we know this because after this verse in Genesis after the last verse in Genesis 4:26 the entire chapter of Genesis 5 <clears throat> Is the genealogy of the godly line all the way back from Seth to Noah, memorializing those who made offerings that were acceptable to God? Now let's go to the next Genesis 8, the next sacrifice, offering, altar. Genesis 8, starting in verse 19. It's actually in the middle of uh, uh, it's actually verse 20, I think. Let's see here. Genesis 8, right? Verse Hm. Am I right here? Oh, I'm sorry. Genesis 8 verse 19. Sorry. There's a big heading in between here in my Bible, and it's got me all messed up. Genesis 8, starting in verse 19. After Noah and all the animals came off the ark, we read that. Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So here, by this general revelation, we understand that, that God makes a difference between offering clean and unclean um, uh, animals. God makes a difference between clean and unclean animals and that clean animals were to be offered. So Job would have understood this too by general revelation. Now let's go to the next sacrifice in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 verse 7. Genesis twelve seven And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So by these... Uh, By knowledge of these events, Job would have known his patriarch Abraham to have kept the faith by making proper offerings to God. We see the connection between Abraham and the righteous line of Seth right here. And in the next scripture, in Genesis chapter 13, the very first verse... Genesis 13, 1, And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, under the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, under the place of the altar, which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Again, connecting Abraham to the righteous line of Seth. So Job would have known that Abraham continued to have communion with God. Why? Abraham, Abraham called upon the name of the Lord and Abraham made the appropriate sacrifice. <clears throat> Next, we'll go to Genesis 13, 17. Genesis 13, 17, God says to Abraham, arise, walk through the land in the length in the length of it and the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. And Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and he built there an altar unto the Lord. And then we come to the offering of Isaac. If you go to Genesis chapter 22, Genesis chapter 22. Starting in verse 9, we get to the sacrifice, the offering, I'm sorry, of, of Isaac on Mount Moriah. Genesis 22:9. 9, and Abraham built an altar there and he laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. So we stopped there. When I did this study, I decided I'm going to cover every sacrifice, every altar, every offering that's in the Bible that Job might have known about. And so when we get to this story, we have to ask, is this a story that Ishmael and the rest of Abraham's sons would have told their children? Remember, um, Ishmael and the other sons of Abraham all generally ended up toward the east. And would these stories have made it there? Because by now... Ishmael's been, I'm sorry, Isaac has been elevated above his brethren. And would that have kind of broken the lines of communication? So, well, we don't know, but it's possible that the general revelation to the world outside of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob ended um, here or before here, actually, in, in, back in Hebron. Um, human nature and jealousy being what it is, the elevation of Isaac above his brethren likely broke the communications. Um, but we know that God's fame has always been very great. And for those who believe like Job, the fame and the general revelation of God's works may have found it their, their way to his ears. And, and by the way, here in Genesis 22, We read a story of a father making a sacrifice of his son, but not for his son. And of course, this is a picture of God sacrificing his only son for the whole world. On the same mountain, in the same place, Jesus Christ would be offered for the sins of the world. His death, burial, and resurrection being our hope for salvation. That's what this is a picture of. But nowhere so far in the Scripture have we found any indication that God instructed any man to make sacrifices for his own children or for other people. All right, now let's conclude this part of the study. We'll look at the rest of the offerings of which Job may possibly have been aware. Uh, Genesis 26, verse 24. Genesis chapter 26 and verse 24. And the Lord appeared unto him, Isaac, the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee and will bless thee and multiply thy seed for my servants Abraham's sake. And he, Isaac, builded an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. So again, this connection back to Seth and the godly line that goes all the way back to righteous Abel. And Isaac makes an offering here for himself. He doesn't make an offering for anyone else. Now let's go to Genesis 35. Genesis chapter 35 and verse 1. And we again check in with Jacob. And God said unto Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God. The God that appeared unto thee when thou fled from the face of Esau thy brother... Then Jacob said to his household and to all that were with him, put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make there an altar unto God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the day. I'm sorry, and was with me in the way which I went. And they gave Jacob all the strange gods that were in their hand and all their earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under an oak, which was by Shechem. Now, where did all these strange gods come from? Where had Jacob been? Does anyone remember where Jacob had been? Remember, Jacob went back east, and he spent a long time, right, working for Laban, and he was dwelling among the men of the east. And he had just recently come back into Canaan. And so... He built an altar there, and he called the place El Bethel. And then in verse 10, And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called anymore Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. So you remember Jacob, he had wrestled with God back in chapter 33, and Israel literally means struggles with God. And so Jacob had been back east, right, among the family of, uh, well, originally Abraham, but his mother. And, and so, and here we have a situation that looks similar to Job's because Jacob is told to make an altar and he feels the need to sanctify his family, right? And, and, and his concerns about the state of their spiritual well-being are well-founded because he finds a bunch of idols among them, Right? Now, there was no written law that said, thou shalt have no other God before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Okay, Exodus 23 had not been given yet. But obviously, Jacob knew that the false idols were an offense to God. And so he sanctifies his family. He says, clean up your act. I'm going to have to go before God here. And then with the idols, he uh, he doesn't destroy them. He hides them. And no one is punished for their idolatry. And again, this is before the law was given. And and we know, we know because of God's continuing revelation, which we have a lot more of now than Job had or or than Jacob had. We know from Romans 7.13 that the law was given that sin might become exceeding sinful, right? Meaning that the law showed men the actual gravity of sin, the actual serious nature of sin, which Jacob didn't fully comprehend back then. It was before the law. The law would later demand that those worshiping idols be put to death. But Israel hadn't received that law yet. And to the point of our study, though, we have no record of Jacob making an offering for his family. But we certainly have the sense that he needed to sanctify them before he made his offering. Um, but since the timeline's not perfectly clear, and Job's story may have taken place during Jacob's lifetime, it's, it's pretty unlikely that Jacob had heard of or read about Job sanctifying his family. I mean, it's as likely that Job had heard something about Jacob that Jacob had heard something about Job. So I suspect that this sense of needing to clean up everybody's act, that this came from somewhere else, um, from back east. Okay, now the next time we see an altar to the Lord is gonna be with Moses, and that's gonna be in Exodus. Exodus chapter 17, Exodus 17, starting in verse 8. And so this is about two months after Israel left Egypt, and it's just a week or two after the manna came down from heaven and God caused the the water to come out of the rock at Horeb. So we're early in the Exodus here. And we read in Exodus 17, 8, Then came Amalek and fought with Israel at Rephidim, and Joshua dis- discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi. For he said, Behold, the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So Moses builds an altar. And again, we have no record of the offering made, but the making of an altar implies an offering. Um, But again, now we're at a point in the timeline where it's unlikely that this event occurred uh, before Job or or at a time Job could have heard. This is after Job. This is after Job had died. So the, the, the story wouldn't bear on our topic per se, but I wanted to cover all the recorded sacrifices before the law was given And and, and it turns out there's one more with Moses, and it brings up some really interesting questions. Go to Exodus 18, verse 12. Exodus 18, verse 12. Exodus 18, 12 reads, And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came and all the elders of of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. That's uh, Okay, and then as you read the story, the next day Jethro saw the enormous responsibilities Moses was burdened with. Remember, he was judging Israel. And we pick up the story in verse 19 where... Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, says, Hearken now unto my voice, I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to Godward, that thou mayest bring the causes unto God, and thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws, and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk, and the work that they must do. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such men over them to be rulers of thousands and rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of tens. So the question uh, that came to my mind is, uh, who is Jethro? Who is Jethro? Was he he a believer? And was the advice he gave Moses by the will of God? All right. So first of all, it's been taught, and you may have heard that Jethro is called by three different names in the Bible. Um, Jethro, Ruel, and Hobab. Well, the the Jewish Mishnah claims that Jethro had seven names, but that's extra biblical. And for simplicity's sake, I like to refer to one Bible. And I prefer the King James, so we're going to go with that. Jethro, Ruel, and Hobab. So let's start with the first name that appears in the Bible, Ruel. Okay, and that's in Exodus chapter 2. Got to go back to Exodus chapter 2 and verse 17. <clears throat> Exodus 2, verse 17. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to Ruel, their father, he said, "How is it that you are come so soon today?" And they said, "An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds." All right. So let's look at the way the name Ruel is introduced in the story. Okay, we've been introduced to the priest of Midian, right? In fact, Exodus two seventeen is a declarative statement, right? Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. So this is a declarative statement that I believe was intended to convey, number one, the beginning of of a section of the story and to convey the context of this next section of the story. That's why it appears Moses sat down by a well, right? The opening line for this part of the story is establishing the context in which the story of Moses' sojourn in Midian is going to be told, and that story is going to be told in the context of the authority of the priest of Midian. Remember, Moses had fled Egypt in fear for his life, and he's in a bad spot. He's on the run. He's not yet in communication with God. But he escaped Egypt, and he found a well, and he sat down, and so far so good... But now he's about to embark on the next part of the story. And the author of the book, which is God, wants the reader to know who's the earthly boss, so to speak, especially over Moses at this time. And that is the priest of Midian. And that's why he's introduced that way. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, a declarative statement about him. So we're introduced to this priest and to his daughters, right? Although the Hebrew here is benut, And when you put that in Google translate, it doesn't say daughters. It just says girl. So it could be translated simply as girls, but the translation as daughters is correct because the author is attributing these girls to the priest of Midian as an acknowledgement of his position and his authority. And, and you want to keep in mind that in the Bible, it's not just the biological sons and daughters that can be referred to as sons and daughters of a patriarch in the Bible. And the flock here, right? It says that they uh, they filled troughs to water their father's flock. So the, tr- the 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 flock is simply called their father's flock in the opening sentence of the story because the attribution of the flock is to the same man, the priest of Midian. And in acknowledgement again of his position. And there's no need to reiterate the same person's identity. You didn't have to say the priest of Midian again. Didn't have to say their father, the priest of Midian. um, Because the... There's no need to reiterate the same person's identity by, a, by his proper name or his position. Um, you don't have to do that over and over again. I mean, when you're writing a story, you don't do that over and over again. And so unless you're trying to make some other point or some emphasis, you would just refer back to their father, right? So let's read again. Genesis 2, 17. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. So this is the introduction of a noteworthy character in the story and a declaration that he has seven daughters. And again, I believe this is meant to establish his authority position. So the point is made that both the women and the flock belong to who? The priest of Midian, right? So why then does the author then use the proper name Ruel when the scene changes from the well to their father's house. Why? Why do you introduce a proper name then? You've already attributed the women and the the flock to the priest of Midian. Why? And I think it's because the author is identifying a different person. That's what I think. It seems to me the author is identifying a different person. The flock and the women belong to the priest of Midian by his patriarchal position. But their biological father in the sense that we would think of their father is a man named Ruel, probably a younger man in the tribe. And and Ruel, by the way, will not be mentioned again at all, depending on your translation, but he won't be mentioned again during Moses' time in Midian at all. But Jethro, the priest of Midian, will figure quite prominently in Midian with Moses and afterward. Ruel, on the other hand, is definitely the father of Moses' wife, Zipporah, right? According to Exodus 2.21, he gave Zipporah uh, to Moses as a wife, and he's called Moses' father-in-law. And so Ruel would be Moses' father-in-law as we think of a father-in-law. Jethro, on the other hand, the first time we hear the name Jethro in Exodus 3.1, right? We heard about the priest of Midian, right? But the first time we hear the name Jethro is in Exodus 3.1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. So Jethro is clearly called Moses' father-in-law here. But does that mean Moses and Ruel are the same man? I'm, so, I'm sorry. Does that mean Jethro and Ruel are the same man? Well, not necessarily. The Hebrew word, kothan, is a generic word for male-in-law. Put it in Google Translate and it will by default say son-in-law, but it really just means male-in-law. And you have to derive from the context, whether it's a father-in-law, a son-in-law, or a brother-in-law. So... So meaning there may not have been the direct type of relationship that we think of, but the translation as father-in-law is correct in that it conveys the influence of Jethro, the position of Jethro, the priest of Midian. He exercises authority over Moses even his father-in-law. He's not just called his father-in-law. He's not just called the priest of Midian. He's called Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. So just as the Hebrew word for girls is translated as daughters in regard to the priest of Midian back in 216, they may not all have been the priest of Midian's biological daughters as we think of them but he was the patriarch in authority so that all the girls in the clan can be called his daughter as a nod to his position, and all the men in the clan can be called his sons. And Moses, since he's from outside through marriage, he could be called a son-in-law of even the priest of Midian, whether or not he was actually his biological father-in-law. So the idea of the text acknowledging Jethro's authority position is reinforced, by the way, When Jethro is called by both his name and his title, father-in-law, as in what we just read, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. We just read Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he's called by his name and his title seven times throughout the story. Even though eight other times he's referred to simply as his father-in-law or just as Moses' father-in-law, but seven times he's referred to as his father-in-law, priest of Midian, or Jethro, priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, as if to emphasize his position. The repetition of the name and the title conveys position and authority. So I posit that Ruel and Jethro may not have been the same man, and the text is emphasizing the authority position held by Jethro. Now, a third name is associated with the priest of Midian, and that's Hobab. And for that, we got to go to Numbers chapter 10, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers chapter 10. Genesis 10, I'm sorry, uh, Numbers chapter 10, verse 29. Numbers 10, 29, And Moses said unto Hobab, the son of Raguel the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, We are journeying unto the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. And then the story goes on. And and knowing the the Hebrew here, it's it's difficult to tell whether Hobab or or this guy Reguel. It's hard to tell who's being called Moses' father-in-law. But it seems that Hobab, well, it's clear that Hobab is the son of Reguel, right? It says... Hobab, the son of Reguel. Well, Reguel is probably the same name as Ruel. It's probably the same guy. It's just a different, tra- uh, a different uh, transliteration. Um, and Ruel is mentioned as father in law to indicate here why is Moses discussing anything with this guy Hobab? Well, he's discussing matters with Hobab. Because if Hobab is the son of Ruel, then Hobab would have been Moses' brother-in-law. And it would have been his brother-in-law in the sense that we understand brother-in-law. But the fluidity of the Hebrew term for a male-in-law, it kind of makes it difficult to know precisely, but we have to trust that the translation is right. And I think they're all correct. Alright, so um Hobab's a different guy altogether. I think Hobab's Moses' brother-in-law. Okay. So I went through all this to get to the question of whether or not Jethro, who's this guy, the Jethro, the priest of Midian? Was he a believer? And is the advice that he gave to Moses in the wilderness, was that God's will that Moses get that advice? Remember back in Exodus chapter 18, 19, we've already been there, but we'll go back because we're going to read it again. Back in Exodus 18, 19, Jethro advises Moses to appoint judges under him to handle the small matters, right? And this will end up relating back to, by the way, why Job might have thought it was appropriate to make an offering on an altar to the Lord for other people. Remember, that's our other question. Where did Job get the idea he could make offerings for his son, right? Okay, so back to Jethro. The fact that Jethro is called a priest... And the fact that many people who read the Bible have thought that he's also called Ruel, which means, by the way, friend of God, that's led a lot of people to believe that Jethro was a believer and that he was righteous. Well, I don't think Jethro's name was Ruel. And by the way, Ruell was at the time a fairly common name. There's, there's at least two other instances of other people, obviously other people named Ruel. It means friend of God. And there were sons of, uh, there's one son of Benjamin named Ruel, And there was one son of, from the line of Esau named Ruel. So parents want their kids to be friends of God. So name him friend of God. Anyway, I don't think... Um, I don't think Jethro and Ruel are the same guy. Um, and, and let's just see what the text tells us about Jethro's religious beliefs. Instead of assuming or trying to intuit about Jethro, let's just look at what the scripture says. Let's go to eighteen Exodus 18, chapter 10. Exodus 18, verse 10. Exodus 18, 10, and Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you, Moses, out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, who hath delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, for in the thing wherein they dealt proudly, he was above them. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came and all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So when I read that, I couldn't help but be reminded of Genesis 10, chapter 8, which is way, way back in the story. Genesis chapter 10, verse 8, which is about Nimrod. Genesis 10:8. Uh, and Cush begat Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. So Moses' father in law, Aaron and the elders came to eat bread with Moses' father in law before God. Before God. So now no one teaches that Nimrod was a believer because he hunted before the Lord, right? Although when you read it, what does it mean he hunted before the Lord? Does that mean the the Lord liked his hunting? Did he hunt in front of the Lord? Did the Lord watch him hunt? What does it mean he hunted before the Lord? Well, Nimrod hunted men and he got between them and the Lord. He was before the Lord in that sense. Nimrod was. And so the scripture leaves open the possibility that this act of Jethro was also done before the Lord. Not in front of the Lord, not because of the Lord, not, not by the will of the Lord, but before the Lord in the sense of Nimrod. Now notice that Jethro says that Moses' victory over Egypt taught him something. It seems he says now. Now he knows that the Lord is greater than other gods, right? Greater than all gods. Now he knows that. So this, this does not indicate to me that he was a believer before this time, or maybe not even at this time, because he's just saying that now I see that your God is greater than all gods, but that doesn't indicate that he doesn't believe there's a bunch of other gods. It's just that he's been very impressed with what he's heard about what Moses' God did. That's all I read in the text. And the fact that he's allowed to make an offering, remember, at a time when God was directly communicating instructions to Moses. And he, he, he he had given instructions to Moses on how because God was directly giving verbal instructions to Moses about how to govern, leads me to think that, that Jethro's advice here was not the will of, of the Lord. I think it was before the Lord, is what I think, in the same sense as Nimrod was a hunter before the Lord. And the fact that Aaron and the elders joined in that doesn't lend any credibility because you read, keep reading about, about, uh, about Aaron and the elders and see how much their opinion, how, how, how their endorsement, how much weight does their endorsement carry? Not much. And, just, and Jethro's introduction in this part of the story, by the way, is indicative of the author of the book, who is God, trying to make a point by how he tells the story. If you go back to Jethro's introduction in this section, and that's Exodus 18, verse 1, where we just were. Exodus 18, 1. We read, When Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and that the Lord had brought Israel out of Moses, then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, Took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, and the two sons, which the name was Gershom, for he had said, I've been a stranger in a strange land. And the name of the other was Eleazar, for God, for the God of my father said, he was mine help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife unto Moses in the wilderness. Okay, why the repetition three times of Jethro's proper name and his authority position. Does the, author not, does the author think he has to remind us of who Jethro is like we forgot from two sentences ago? No. The repetition is, <clears throat> I think, to establish that this guy Jethro is assuming authority that he had back east in Midian that he's allowed to bring that authority even to this place and at this time. That's what Jethro assumed. He assumed he had that authority and Moses didn't do anything to dissuade him. When Jethro shows up, it says Moses went out and made obeisance to him and kissed his ring or whatever they did, right? And so, and then Jethro's advice to appoint men to do what God had appointed Moses to do right? Who had God told to instruct the people? Did God say, pick a bunch of guys, Moses? That's not what God said. God says, Moses, you tell these people. God knew this is the only guy I can count on. These other people are a mess. God knew that. Now, Jethro didn't know that. What did Jethro know? He knew what he learned back East. Well, God knew the situation. And and by the way, God had just spoken personally to Moses after the defeat of the Amalekites. Personally, verbally spoke to him. And so Jethro's advice just seems out of place with the way God had been dealing with Moses at that time. In fact, let's just reread this real quick. Exodus 18, 14. Exodus 18, 14. And when Moses' father-in-law saw... All that he did, Moses, to the people, he said, What is this thing that thou doest to the people? Why sittest thou thyself alone? And all this people stand by thee from morning unto evening. And Moses said unto his father-in-law, Because the people come unto me to inquire of God. When they have a matter, they come unto me, and I judge between one and the other, and I do make them know the statutes of God and His laws. And Moses' father-in-law said unto him, The thing that thou doest is not good. Thou will surely wear away both thou and and the people with thee. For this thing is too heavy for thee. Thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. Hearken now unto my voice, and I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to Godward, that thou mayest bring the cause unto God, and thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws, and thou shalt show them the way and wherein they must walk. And the work that they must do, moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people, able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands and rulers of hundreds and rulers of fifties and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people all the seasons, and it shall be that every great matter they shall bring unto thee, but every small matter they shall judge. So shall it be easier for thyself, and they shall bear the burden with thee. If thou shalt do this thing as God commanded thee so, then thou shalt be able to endure, and all this people shall also go to their place in peace. So Moses hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. So Jethro instructed that Moses, as the authority figure, should be to Godward for the people. And Jethro implied that God would be with Moses. And Jethro even implied here that God was commanding this to Moses. But the text does not say that. God did not say that to Moses. Jethro said that to Moses. And Moses does not inquire of God, even though Moses was just talking to God. Moses doesn't inquire of God. And by the way, when you read the story of Moses, Moses had that habit most of his life of not inquiring of God. It's just, an awful lot of people were in the habit of not inquiring about, to, to God about very important things, even though the general revelation, before the Bible, there was a general revelation that if you wanted to know, you could call upon the name of the Lord. And you could build an altar and you could make a sacrifice. And if you wanted to know, God would answer you. But, but people didn't do it, and Moses didn't do it here. But his father-in-law, who had been in earthly authority over him when he fled out of Egypt... And by the way, how long was Moses in, in, in Midian? Do, do we have a timeline of how long Moses was in Midian? Uh, 40 years, it says. And, not, and this isn't just a, a figure of speech 40 years, because it says Moses was 80 years old when he went back. So... Jethro had authority over Moses for a long time. And and, and by the way, uh, (laughs) the whole time Moses was in Midian, he never sought God. God finally had to come and do the whole burning bush to get his attention. You remember? Moses was not looking for God. All right. And by the way, Moses separated God. uh, uh, I'm sorry. uh, God separated Moses from Jethro. Jethro the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, in in similar fashion as he had separated Abraham from his family. He said, get away from him. Um, Yeah, get get away from your family back east and come and do where where I need you. But um, both Moses... Um hold on. Jethro, I'm sorry. Both Job and Moses, I'm sorry. No. There's too many names. Ruel, Esau, Jacob, Isaac and Moses. All right. Stop. J- Job and <clears throat> And, say, I'm sorry, Job and Jethro are both members of families from back east. Remember where Job was? The land of Uz, which is out east in Moab, right? And there it appears Jethro and other men men of authority had presumed that they could appoint themselves as priests and they could make intercession with God for their families and for other people. What are the odds that the richest guys would put themselves in charge, even of the religion? What are the odds that that would happen? That the richest, most powerful guy would say, I'm your way to God. So it seems that's what the the families back East did. That's what Jethro appears to have done. But this is never shown to be the case in the godly line from Abel all the way to Moses. This is not the case. You're not allowed to appoint yourself a priest. There's no intermediary bef- between you and God. You want to you hear from God? Build an altar and call upon the name of the Lord. And so the scripture indicates that Job got the idea that he could make a sacrifice and intercession on behalf of his children from the other men of the east with whom he dwelt. And and that even though he was a believer, he had fallen into this sin. And and perhaps he had not really raised his children in the proper fear and admonition of the Lord. Perhaps his children had been affected by this idea that dad's the rich guy, he can be the priest, and he's our intercessor between God, they end up partying all the time, and dad's home flogging himself thinking I've got to make up for my rotten kids with God. What are the odds that that could happen that way? So, and and even though God had graced out Job long before, God had recognized Job's faith and called him upstanding, called him my servant. So he had graced Job out. But Job was found to be an error in this thing. And it's quite possible that this was the reason God chose Job to take corrective action in the life of Job. I've always wondered why did God allow Satan to persecute Job? God says Job's an upright guy. He's perfect. He's my servant. He fears God. He eschews evil. So why would God let Satan do this? Well, I assumed it was just to teach the world a lesson about suffering and to write the book of Job. I I never thought that much about it. And and by the way, I think that's true that not to write the book of Job, but to teach the world a lesson about about God and man and suffering. But having studied through this, I've got to consider that God was also seeking to teach Job a lesson. Um, And for a reason, God wanted to purge the pagan influences out of Job's life. And in doing so, make a record for the world that became the book of Job. Whom he loves, he chastens. Right? So God needed, God loved Job. In fact, let's just reread real quick Job 1, 1 through 6, real quick. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, everyone in his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it was so when the days of their fasting, when the days of their feasting were gone out, that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. So that last line, thus did Job continually. This reminds me of Genesis 6. Genesis 6, chapter 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. So, here was a man God loved. God graced him out. God loved him. And here he is falling into the habitual error and sin to the detriment of his own children who in fact, by the way, belong to the one who is in ultimate authority, God, all the children are God's sons and daughters. We can all be called in, in, in one sense, the children of God, even the lost are still the children of God in a sense. And God's determined to preserve as many of his children as he can. So, could it be that this continual practice that had infected Job from his pagan neighbors and the results of that now bearing fruit, bitter fruit within his own family, among his own children, that that caused God to decide to do something about it? Perhaps God decided to embark on a mission to chasten Job, to purge out the pagan practices and beliefs that were affecting his people and their children and their children's children and their children. God sees the big long picture. And so God decided to do something about it and to record it for all time. And that's the book of Job, which so, and and I'm still fairly intimidated by this book, by, by just getting this much out of it. And I'm not even through the first 10 verses of the book. It's an intimidating book, but so we'll see. We'll, we'll continue to study this book to find out what else we learn, and we'll return next week, Lord willing. Until then, may the grace of God go with you, and may the peace of Jesus Christ be upon you. Let's pray, Lord. Thank you for the book of Job. Thank you for this group to hear and to study alongside and to help, uh, to help us all understand, Lord, because the book is thick and there's a lot of information and. In it we want to know You better. We want to understand Your Word. We thank, we're thankful that You gave Your Word to us, but more so for Your Son, Jesus Christ, and the blood of His cross, and our salvation. Lord, we thank You for that most of all. In Your name we pray. Amen.